I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening. And welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As always, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad you could join me tonight. This evening we'll be continuing with Journey to the Center of the Earth, but before we open our book, let's take a moment for ourselves. Get comfy where you are and allow yourself to release any tension in your body. Concentrate on letting your limbs fall heavy and your head to be supported by your pillows. Give your back and neck permission to let go and relax. Now, Take the deepest inhale you've taken all day. Feel the air fill your lungs and then your belly. And now exhale slowly and fully. One more time. Inhaling and exhaling. In our last episode, we were about to follow a fearful Harry into the vertical tunnel in the crater of Scartaris. The professor arranged the ropes, and Hans descended first. The party advanced, pausing to pull down and retie the ropes as they went for miles and miles and hours and hours, until Hans called halt. They had reached the bottom of the pit, where they were to rest and eat, before proceeding somewhat more horizontally the following day. In the morning, they ate breakfast and continued to descend gradually, following a tunnel which eventually led to a junction of three routes. The professor decided they would take the east tunnel, based on nothing more than a hunch. After many more hours, Harry began to be concerned that they were no longer descending. He noticed the earth had become more porous, and there was evidence of fossils in the rocks. Without an appearance of a water source, they were forced to begin rationing what they had left, but the professor was determined to continue as far as possible before confirming he had made a mistake. And that's where we pick back up tonight. Professor Hardwig continuing forward, and Harry fearful and on the brink of dehydration 
So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 17 Deeper and Deeper The Coal Mine In truth, we were compelled to put ourselves upon rations. Our supply would certainly last not more than three days. I found this out about supper time. The worst part of the matter was, in what is called the transition rocks, it was hardly to be expected we should meet with water. I had read of the horrors of thirst, and I knew that where we were, a brief trial of its sufferings would put an end to our adventures and our lives. But it was utterly useless to discuss the matter with my uncle. He would have answered by some axiom from Plato, during the whole of the next day, we proceeded on our journey through this interminable gallery, arch after arch, tunnel after tunnel. We journeyed without exchanging a word. We had become as mute and reticent as Hans, our guide. The road had no longer an upward tendency. At all events, if it had, it was not to be made out very clearly. Sometimes there could be no doubt that we were going downwards, but this inclination was scarcely to be distinguished and was by no means reassuring to the professor, because the character of the strata was in no ways modified and the transition character of the rocks became more and more marked. It was a glorious sight to see how the electric light brought out the sparkles in the walls of the calcareous rocks and the old red sandstone. One might have fancied oneself in one of those deep cuttings in Devonshire which have given their name to this kind of soil. Some magnificent specimens of marble projected from the sides of the gallery, some of an agate grey with white veins of variegated character, others of a yellow spotted colour with red veins. Farther off might be seen samples of colour in which cherry-tinted seams were to be found in all their brightest shades. The greater number of these marbles were stamped with the marks of ancient animals. Since the previous evening, nature and creation had made considerable progress. Instead of the rudimentary trilobites, I perceived the remains of a more perfect order. Among others were the fish in which the eye of a geologist has been able to discover the first form of the reptile. The Devonian seas were inhabited by a vast number of animals of this species, which were deposited in tens of thousands in the rocks of new formation. 
It was quite evident to me that we were ascending the scale of animal life of which humans form the summit. My excellent uncle, the professor, appeared not to take notice of these warnings. He was determined at any risk to proceed. He must have been in the expectation of one of two things, either that a vertical well was about to open under his feet and thus allow him to continue his descent, or that some insurmountable obstacle would compel us to stop and go back by the road we had so long traveled. But evening came again, and to my horror, neither hope was doomed to be realized. On Friday, after a night when I began to feel the gnawing agony of thirst, and when, in consequence, appetite decreased, our little band rose and once more followed the turnings and windings, the ascents and descents of this interminable gallery. All was silent and gloomy. I could see that even my uncle had ventured too far. After about ten hours of further progress, a progress dull and monotonous to the last degree, I remarked that the reverberation and reflection of our lamps upon the sides of the tunnel had singularly diminished. The marble, the schist, the calcareous rocks, the red sandstone had disappeared, leaving in their places a dark and gloomy wall, somber and without brightness. When we reached a remarkably narrow part of the tunnel, I leaned my left hand against the rock. When I took my hand away and happened to glance at it, it was quite black. We had reached the coal strata of the central earth. A coal mine, I observed. Coal mine without miners, responded my uncle. How can we tell? I asked. I can tell, replied my uncle in a doctorial tone. I am perfectly certain that this gallery, through successive layers of coal, was not cut by the hand of men. But whether it is the work of nature or not is of little concern to us. The hour of our evening meal has come. Let us sup. Hans, the guide, occupied himself in preparing food. I had come to that point when I could no longer eat. All I cared about were the few drops of water which fell to my share. What I suffered it is useless to record. The guide's gourd, not quite half full, was all that was left for us three. Having finished, my two companions laid themselves down upon their rugs and found in sleep a remedy for their fatigue and sufferings. As for me, I could not sleep. I lay counting the hours until morning. The next morning, Saturday, 
at six o'clock, we started again. Twenty minutes later, we suddenly came upon a vast excavation. From its mighty extent, I saw at once that the hand of man could have had nothing to do with this coal mine. The vault above would have fallen in. As it was, it was only held together by some miracle of nature. This mighty, natural cavern was about a hundred feet wide and about a hundred and fifty high. The earth had evidently been cast apart by some violent, subterranean commotion. The mass, giving way to some prodigious upheaving of nature, had split in two, leaving the vast gap into which we, inhabitants of the earth, had penetrated for the first time. The whole singular history of the coal period was written on those dark and gloomy walls. A geologist would have been able to easily follow the different phases of its formation. The seams of coal were separated by strata of sandstone, a compact clay which appeared to be crushed down by the weight from above. At that period of the world which preceded the secondary epoch, the earth was covered by a coating of enormous and rich vegetation due to the double action of tropical heat and perpetual humidity. A vast atmospheric cloud of vapor surrounded the earth on all sides, preventing the rays of the sun from ever reaching it. Hence the conclusion that these intense heats did not arise from this new source of caloric. Perhaps even the star of day was not quite ready for its brilliant work to illuminate a universe. Climates did not as yet exist, and a level heat pervaded the whole surface of the globe, the same heat existing at the North Pole as at the equator. Whence did it come? From the interior of the earth? In spite of all the learned theories of Professor Hardwig, a fierce and vehement fire certainly burned within the entrails of the great spheroid. Its action was felt even to the very topmost crust of the earth. The plants then in existence being deprived of the rays of the sun, had neither buds, nor flowers, nor odor. But their roots drew a strong and vigorous life from the burning earth of the early days. There were but few of what may be called trees, only herbaceous plants, immense turfs, briars, mosses, rare families which, however, in those days by tens and tens of thousands. 
It is entirely to this exuberant vegetation that coal owes its origin. The crust of the vast globe still yielded under the influence of the seething, boiling mass which was forever at work beneath. Hence arose numerous fissures and continual falling in of the upper earth. The dense mass of plants being beneath the waters soon formed themselves into vast agglomerations. Then came about the action of natural chemistry. In the depths of the ocean, the vegetable mass at first became turf. Then, thanks to the influence of gases and subterranean fermentation, they underwent the complete process of mineralization. In this manner, in the early days, were formed those vast and prodigious layers of coal, which an ever-increasing consumption must utterly use up in about three centuries more, if people do not find some more economic light than gas and some cheaper motive power than steam. All these reflections, the memories of my school studies, came to my mind while I gazed upon these mighty accumulations of coal, whose riches, however, are scarcely likely to be ever utilized. The working of these mines could only be carried out at an expense that would never yield a profit. The matter, however, is scarcely worthy consideration when coal is scattered over the whole surface of the globe within a few yards of the upper crust. As I looked at these untouched strata, therefore, I knew they would remain as long as the world lasts. While we still continued our journey, I alone forgot the length of the road by giving myself up wholly to these geological considerations. The temperature continued to be very much the same as while we were traveling amidst the lava and the skids. On the other hand, my sense of smell was much affected by a very powerful odor. I immediately knew that the gallery was filled to overflowing with that dangerous gas the miners call fire damp the explosion of which has caused such fearful and terrible accidents. Happily, we were able to illuminate our progress by means of the Ruhmkorff apparatus. If we had been so rash and imprudent as to explore this gallery, torch in hand, a terrible explosion would have put an end to our travels, simply because no travelers would be left. Our excursion through this wondrous coal mine in the very bowels of the earth lasted until evening. My uncle was scarcely able to conceal his impatience and dissatisfaction at the road continuing still to advance in a horizontal direction. 
The darkness, dense and opaque, a few yards in advance and in the rear, rendered it impossible to make out what was the length of the gallery. For myself, I began to believe that it was simply interminable and would go on in some manner for months. Suddenly, at six o'clock, we stood in front of a wall. To the right, to the left, above, below, nowhere was there any passage. We had reached a spot where the rocks said in unmistakable accents, no thoroughfare. I stood, stupefied. The guide simply folded his arms. My uncle was silent. Well, well, so much the better, said my uncle at last. I now know what we are about. We are decidedly not upon the road followed by Saknusum. All we have to do is to go back. Let us take one night's good rest, and before three days are over, I promise you we shall have regained the point where the gallery is divided. Yes, we may if our strength lasts as long, I said in a lamentable voice. And why not? He asked. Tomorrow, among us three, there will not be a drop of water, I replied. It is just gone. And your courage with it, said my uncle, speaking in a severe tone. What could I say? I turned round on my side and from sheer exhaustion fell into a heavy sleep disturbed by dreams of water, and I awoke unrefreshed. I would have bartered a diamond mine for a glass of pure spring water. Chapter 18 The Wrong Road The next day, our departure took place at a very early hour, There was no time for the least delay. According to my account, we had five days' hard work to get back to the place where the galleries divided. I can never tell all the sufferings we endured upon our return. My uncle bore them like a man who has been in the wrong. That is, with concentrated and suppressed anger. Hans bore it with all the resignation of his character. And I, I confess that I did nothing but complain and despair. I had no heart for this bad fortune. But there was one consolation. Defeat at the outset would probably upset the whole journey. As I had expected from the first... Our supply of water gave completely out on our first day's march. Our provision of liquids was reduced to our supply of Scheidem gin, but this horrible, nay, I will say it, this infernal liquor burnt the throat, and I could not even bear the sight of it. I found the temperature to be stifling. I was paralyzed with fatigue. More than once, 
I was about to fall insensible to the ground. The whole party then halted, and the worthy Icelander and my excellent uncle did their best to console and comfort me. I could, however, plainly see that my uncle was contending painfully against the extreme fatigues of our journey and the awful torture generated by the absence of water. At length, a time came when I ceased to recollect anything, when all was one awful, hideous, fantastic dream. At last, on Tuesday, the 7th of the month of July, after crawling on our hands and knees for many hours, more dead than alive, we reached the point of junction between the galleries. I lay like a log, an inert mass of human flesh on the arid lava soil. It was then ten in the morning. Hans and my uncle, leaning against the wall, tried to nibble away at some pieces of biscuit while deep groans and sighs escaped from my scorched and swollen lips. Then I fell off into a kind of deep lethargy. Presently I felt my uncle approach and lift me up tenderly in his arms. Poor boy, I heard him say in a tone of deep commiseration. I was profoundly touched by these words, being by no means accustomed to signs of compassion in the professor. I caught his trembling hands in mine and gave them a gentle pressure. He allowed me to do so without resistance, looking at me kindly all the time. His eyes were wet with tears. I then saw him take the gourd which he wore at his side. To my surprise, or rather to my stupefaction, he placed it to my lips. Drink, my boy, he said. Was it possible my ears had not deceived me? Was my uncle mad? I looked at him with, I am sure, quite an idiotic expression. I could not believe him. I too much feared the counteraction of disappointment. Drink, he said again. Had I heard all right? Before, however, I could ask myself the question a second time. A mouthful of water cooled my parched lips and throat. One mouthful, but I do believe it brought me back to life. I thanked my uncle by clasping my hands. My heart was too full to speak. Yes, said he, one mouthful of water. The very last. Do you hear, my boy? The very last. I have taken care of it. At the bottom of my bottle is the apple of my eye. Twenty times, a hundred times, I have resisted the fearful desire to drink it. But no, no, Harry. I saved it for you. My dear uncle, I exclaimed 
and the big tears rolled down my hot and feverish cheeks. Yes, my poor boy, he said. I knew that when you reached this place, this crossroad in the earth, you would fall down half dead, and I saved my last drop of water in order to restore you. Thanks, I said. Thanks from my heart. As little as my thirst was really quenched, I had nevertheless partially recovered my strength. The contracted muscles of my throat relaxed, and the inflammation of my lips in some measure subsided. At all events, I was able to speak. Well, I said, there can be no doubt now as to what we have to do. Water has utterly failed us. Our journey is therefore at an end. Let us return. While I spoke thus, my uncle evidently avoided my face. He held down his head, and his eyes were turned in every possible direction but the right one. Yes, I continued, getting excited by my own words. We must go back to Snaefels. May heaven give us strength to enable us once more to revisit the light of day. Would that we now stood on the summit of the crater. Go back, said my uncle, speaking to himself. And must it be so? Go back? Yes, and without losing a single moment, I said. For some moments there was silence under that dark and gloomy vault. So, my dear Harry, said the professor in a very singular tone of voice, those first few drops of water have not sufficed to restore your energy and courage. Courage, I cried. I see that you are quite as downcast as before and still give way to discouragement and despair, said he. What, then, was that man made of? And what other projects were entering his fertile and audacious brain? You are not discouraged, sir, I asked. What? Just as we are on the verge of success, he replied. Never, never shall it be said that Professor Hardwig retreated. Then we must make up our minds to perish, I said with a helpless sigh. No, Harry, my boy, certainly not, said my uncle. Go, leave me. I am very far from desiring your death. Take hands with you. I will go on alone. You ask us to leave you? I inquired. Leave me, I say, said he. I have undertaken this dangerous and perilous adventure. I will carry it to the end 
or I will never return to the surface of Mother Earth. Go, Harry. Once more I say to you, go. My uncle, as he spoke, was terribly excited. His voice, which before had been tender, became harsh and menacing. He appeared to be struggling with desperate energy against the impossible. I did not wish to abandon him at the bottom of that abyss, while on the other hand, the instinct of preservation told me to fly. Meanwhile, our guide was looking on with profound calmness and indifference. He appeared to be an unconcerned party, and yet he perfectly well knew what was going on between us. Our gestures sufficiently indicated the different roads each wished to follow, and which each tried to influence the other to undertake. But Hans appeared not to take the slightest interest in what was really a question of life and death for us all. He waited, quite ready to obey the signal which should say go aloft, or to resume his desperate journey into the interior of the earth. How then I wished, with all my heart and soul, that I could make him understand my words, my representations, my sighs and groans. The earnest accents in which I should have spoken would have convinced that cold, hard nature. Those fearful dangers and perils of which the stolid guide had no idea, I would have pointed them out to him. I would have, as it were, made him see and feel. Between us we might have convinced the obstinate professor. If the worst had come to the worst, we could have compelled him to return to the summit of Snaefels. I quietly approached Hans. I caught his hand in mine. He never moved a muscle. The Icelander gently shook his head and pointed to my uncle. No, I tell you he is not the master of our lives, I replied. We must fly. We must drag him with us. Do you hear me? I have already explained that I held hands by the arm. I tried to make him rise from his seat. I struggled with him and tried to force him away. My uncle now interposed. My good Harry, be calm, he said. You will obtain nothing from this good man. Therefore, listen to what I have to say. I folded my arms as well as I could and looked at my uncle full in the face. This wretched want of water, he said, is the sole obstacle to the success of my project. In the entire gallery, made of lava, skist and coal, it is true we have found not one liquid molecule. It is quite possible that we may be more fortunate 
in the western tunnel. My sole reply was to shake my head with an air of deep incredulity. Listen to me to the end, said the professor in his well-known lecturing voice. While you lay yonder without life or motion, I undertook a reconnoitering journey into the confirmation of this other gallery. I have discovered that it goes directly downwards into the bowels of the earth, and in a few hours will take us to old granitic formation. In this, we shall undoubtedly find innumerable springs. The nature of the rock makes this a mathematical certainty, and instinct agrees with logic to say that it is so. Now, this is the serious proposition which I have to make to you. I only ask you of one more day. If, when the time is expired, I have not found the water of which we are in search, I swear to you, I will give up my mighty enterprise and return to the Earth's surface. Despite my irritation and despair, I knew how much it cost my uncle to make this proposition and to hold such conciliatory language. Under the circumstances, what could I do but yield? Well, I said, let it be as you wish, and may heaven reward your superhuman energy. But as, unless we discover water, our hours are numbered, let us lose no time but go ahead. Chapter 19 The Western Gallery A New Route Our descent was now resumed by means of the second gallery. Hans took up his post in front as usual. We had not gone more than a hundred yards when the professor carefully examined the walls. This is the ancient formation he said. We are on the right road. Onwards is our hope. When the whole earth got cool in the first hours of the world's morning, the diminution of the volume of the earth produced a state of dislocation in its upper crust, followed by raptures, crevices, and fissures. The passage was a fissure of this kind, through which, ages ago, had flowed the eruptive granite. The thousand windings and turnings formed an inextricable labyrinth through the ancient soil. As we descended, successions of layers composing the ancient soil appeared with the utmost fidelity of detail Geological science considers this soil as the base of the mineral crust, and it is recognized that it is composed of three different strata, or layers, all resting on the immovable rock known as granite. 
No mineralogists have ever found themselves placed in such a marvelous position to study nature in all her real and naked beauty. The sounding rod, a mere machine, could not bring to the surface of the earth the objects of value for the study of its internal structure, which we were about to see with our own eyes, to touch with our own hands. Remember that I am writing this after the journey. Across the streak of the rocks, colored by beautiful green tints, wound metallic threads of copper, of manganese, with traces of platinum and gold. I could not help gazing at these riches buried in the entrails of Mother Earth and of which no man would have the enjoyment to the end of time. These treasures, mighty and inexhaustible, were buried in the morning of the Earth's history at such awful depths that no crowbar or pickaxe will ever drag them from their tomb. The light of our Ruhmkorff's coil increased tenfold by the myriad prismatic masses of rock, sent its jets of fire in every direction, and I could fancy myself traveling through a huge hollow diamond the rays of which produced myriad extraordinary effects. Towards six o'clock, this festival of light began sensibly and visibly to decrease, and soon almost ceased. The sides of the gallery assumed a crystallized tint with a somber hue, White mica began to commingle more freely with feldspar and quartz to form what may be called the true rock, the stone which is hard above all that supports without being crushed the four stories of the earth's soil. We were walled by an immense prison of granite. It was now eight o'clock, and still there was no sign of water. The sufferings I endured were horrible. My uncle now kept at the head of our little column. Nothing could induce him to stop. I, meanwhile, had but one real thought. My ear was keenly on the watch to catch the sound of a spring but no pleasant sound of falling water fell upon my listening ear. But at last, the time came when my limbs refused to carry me longer. I contended heroically against the terrible tortures I endured because I did not wish to compel my uncle to halt. To him, I knew this would be the last fatal stroke. Suddenly I felt a deadly faintness come over me. My eyes could no longer see. My knees shook. I gave one despairing cry 
and fell. My uncle turned and slowly retraced his steps. He looked at me with folded arms and then allowed one sentence to escape in hollow accents from his lips. All is over. The last thing I saw was a face fearfully distorted with pain and sorrow, and then my eyes closed. When I again opened them, I saw my companions lying near me, motionless, wrapped in their huge traveling rugs. Were they asleep or dead? For myself, sleep was wholly out of the question. My fainting fit over, I was wakeful as a lark. I suffered too much for sleep to visit my eyelids. The more that I thought myself sick unto death, dying. The last words spoken by my uncle seemed to be buzzing in my ears. All is over and it was probable that he was right. In the state of prostration to which I was reduced, it was madness to think of ever again seeing the light of day. Above were miles upon miles of the earth's crust. As I thought of it, I could fancy the whole weight resting on my shoulders. I was crushed, annihilated, and exhausted myself in vain attempts to turn in my granite bed. Hours upon hours passed away. A profound and terrible silence reigned around us, a silence of the tomb. Nothing could make itself heard through these gigantic walls of granite. The very thought was stupendous. Presently, Despite my apathy, despite the kind of deadly calm into which I was cursed, something aroused me. It was a slight but peculiar noise. While I was watching intently, I observed that the tunnel was becoming dark. Then, gazing through the dim light that remained, I thought I saw the Icelander taking his departure lamp in hand. Why had he acted thus? Did Hans the guide mean to abandon us? My uncle lay fast asleep, or dead. I tried to cry out and arouse him, my voice feebly issuing from my parched and fevered lips found no echo in that fearful place. My throat was dry my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. The obscurity had by this time become intense, and at last even the faint sound of the guide's footsteps was lost in the blank distance. My soul seemed filled with anguish, and death appeared welcome, only let it come quickly. Hans is leaving us, I said. Hans, Hans, if you are a good man, come back. 
These words were spoken to myself. They could not be heard aloud. Nevertheless, after their first few moments of terror were over, I was ashamed of my suspicions against the man who hitherto had behaved so admirably. Nothing in his conduct or character justified suspicion. Moreover, a moment's reflection reassured me. His departure could not be a flight. Instead of ascending the gallery, he was going deeper down into the gulf. Had he had any bad design, his way would have been upwards. This reasoning calmed me a little, and I began to hope. The good and peaceful, imperturbable Hans would certainly not have arisen from his sleep without some serious and grave motive. Was he bent on a voyage of discovery? During the deep, still silence of the night, had he at last heard that sweet murmur about which we were all so anxious? Thank you.